0: Good morning, good morning. Can everybody hear me? Okay. First, I want to clear the air a little bit. I feel like there might be some deception going on here. Um, I am not up in front of you today wearing a suit because I want to be wearing a suit. Um, In fact, I was just planning on wearing the pants and not the jacket, but my Pittsburgh Pirate shirt was showing through a little bit too much this morning. So I have to button that back up now. So just to let you know, about that now I feel clean. Or, um, good morning. Our passage this morning actually is a. Uh, we're continuing on in a series on the Psalms, and this is uh, Psalm 12. Which, as we as we get to this one, we look at it, and there are some happy Psalms, and then there are some Psalms like Psalm 12. Uh, this is a Psalm of lament. It's a. It's a place that most of us are familiar with in some way you know it's a, a place that many of us have been to it's this is a place of of isolation loneliness despair you know most of us probably aren't there right now but and and when we are there our circumstances aren't usually the exact same as david's when he was writing this but but we can know these feelings that david is expressing because we shared in the human experience of hopelessness of loneliness and you know, darkness has kind of crept in, and, and, and David is at once surrounded and alone. I think a lot of us can um, share that sentiment with David at one time or another. So if you would, would you please stand with me as we read Psalm 12. Father, we ask this morning that you would open your word to us, Lord, that we would uh, understand the truth that you have. For us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Here's Psalm 12. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say with our heart we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. You may be seated. So if you remember last week, uh, if you weren't here, uh, we were t- Psalm 11, the background of Psalm 11 and Psalm 12, um, they, sh- they share the same background and that David is, um, is on the run from King Saul. And King Saul had just um, found out that the priests of Nob had been helping David and his men, providing them a uh, harbor, um, like a safe haven while he was there. And um, they actually equip him with weapons. Uh, David takes the spear of Goliath from the priests of Nob, which is kind of a cool thing, I think, um, because they don't have any other weapons. And he goes off, and Saul hears about this from uh, Doeg. And Doeg is an Edomite who then brings Saul back to the priests. Saul commands his guard to kill the priests of Nob. They refuse to do so, and so this Edomite, Doeg, kills 85 priests of God there at Nob, and then he kills men and women and children and infants and livestock from the surrounding area. So this is a place that, that, that David is writing from as he is being pursued by King Saul. You know, another prophet in the Old Testament has a similar situation happening to him as David happens, has happened to him here. And that's the prophet Elijah. Elijah is a prophet that God has commanded to speak against a wicked king and queen, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. And, and what Jezebel has done is she's brought idol worship throughout the nation of Israel. David comes to speak against that. He actually proclaims that God is going to um, cause a famine. He prays that God will stop, stop it from raining. And he tells them that until he prays again, it will not rain. So three years go by with no rain. And Elijah goes off into hiding and King Ahab and Queen Jezebel are looking for this man, this scourge of the earth because they're seeing their nation suffer because of this famine. You know, really the famine is a a famine of um, spirituality. It's not truly a famine of, um, although it is actually a famine of rain and it's a drought and there are people and livestock that are dying because of the wickedness of the king and the queen. So Elijah, like David, he's a wanted man. And when he finally confronts the king, he challenges these false prophets on top of Mount Carmel. You probably um, have either seen a picture of this or you remember this very vividly that that Elijah goes up on top of Mount Carmel. He challenges 450 prophets of Baal to ignite a stack of um, an altar of wood on fire. And then there's him on the other side. And, and Elijah has this great victory. Um, everyone can see in plain sight that, that Baal is a powerless god. He, he slaughters the prophets of Baal, and then the king and queen pursue him, and he races off into the wilderness. Okay. So Elijah has this great victory, this great conquest, and then he runs away. In 1 Kings 19, though, Elijah says this, this is right after this great victory happens. He says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. So Elijah is here in the same sort of predicament as David. You know, I am the only one left. The godly ones are gone. The prophets have been killed, not these priests have been killed. The ones who stood before us in the face of persecution, they're gone and now we're all alone. And history is littered with people who have stood up to the face of persecution alone. Uh, a great famous example of this would be Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor, theologian, who was one of the very few men who stood up to Hitler. He spoke out against him and even conspired against him uh, several attempts to have him assassinated before he was Uncovered, and um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer actually was killed in a concentration camp just a few weeks before it was liberated by the Allies in World War II. We look throughout the Scripture. We see Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, men who stand up for truth. We see the Daniel who does the same thing, stands up for truth. We see Jesus here on our window. What is he doing? He's alone in a garden. He's surrounded by his friends, and yet he's entirely, utterly alone. So this, this theme kind of happens often as people who stand for the truth, as people um, who know the truth, are found themselves alone and desperate. And they have the same problem. Now, we all face alienation from time to time. We all... Um, experience similar things to what David does, uh, yet for myself, and I'll speak for myself only, oftentimes the reason that I face alienation and isolation is because of something stupid that I've done or I've said. Not usually am I standing for the truth, and thus I'm experiencing isolation or, um, or loneliness because of that, but if you ask my wife, and please don't ask her right now, um, about all the different things that I've done or said that I wish I could take back, uh, my history is littered with that. So we're talking about real persecution. Not, this is not something that David has brought upon himself. Okay, this is not something that Elijah has brought upon himself. You know, me, when I cry out for the help of God, my, 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 my prayer is usually, God, save me from myself. Right? David is saying, save me from my enemies. I'm surrounded. It's a little bit different. You know, David, and we see here that some situations don't call for lengthy prayers you look at the first word of Psalm Psalm 12, save, O Lord, or help God. David, sometimes all we need is just a word. Sometimes we don't need to offer up these lengthy prayers. We don't need to, to make these big words because God knows our circumstances. He knows the place that we are right at that moment. And sometimes we only have a moment to say, God, help. As we look at this, so let's remember something. Remember this, that the present always seems more dangerous than the past. Okay, the present always seems more dangerous than the past. See, I think we have a tendency as human beings to think that whatever is happening now is either the best thing ever or it's the worst thing ever. Is Anybody kind of with me on that? You know, the, the best day of my life was the day I got married, which was January 27th, 2007, Right? Yes. Okay. And then the best day of my life was the day that my first daughter was born, February 2nd, 2011. Okay. Then my, then my next daughter. So that was uh, uh, May 30th, uh, th- 2013, right? So I can go the best day of my life was this and this and this. And then, oh, the best day of my life was the last time the Steelers won the Super Bowl. The best day of my life was the day they finally opened up a Five Guys in Huntsville. Okay? So, I, I have a tendency as a human being to look and go, uh, uh, whatever's the most recent thing happening, that's either the best thing or the worst thing. You know, we do it the same way with, with bad things. I don't want to make anybody really depressed and sad, uh, but we do the same thing with the bad things. Okay, some, some terrible things happen, and then maybe my, my girlfriend breaks up with me, that's the worst day ever. My car broke down on me, that's the worst day ever. I mean, you always have some guy going, really? That's worse than the Holocaust? You know, I'm not talking about that stuff, but. You know, we have a tendency to not be able to put things in a proper historical suspe- perspective in, in the immediate uh, context, okay? And we have a tendency to, to trivialize things that have happened before and elevate whatever is currently going on to be a pressing matter. Because some of us actually live this way. We go from, like, crisis to crisis to crisis to crisis. Anybody live that way? No this, and this, and this, and this, and every time we turn around, it's another crisis, and another crisis, and another crisis, and we're not able to, we don't stop, and pause, and think of all that God has taken us through, okay? You know, we're poor at putting these things into their historical context. Even in Elijah's situation, he complains to God that he's the only prophet left, but just a little bit before this, he talked to Obadiah, and Obadiah told him, you know what, I took a hundred prophets of God, I stashed them away, I've been hiding them in caves, in groups of 50, I've been feeding them and providing them water for the last three years. Okay, Elijah knows he's not alone. He knows he's not the only one left. Right after this, God tells him, there's still 7,000 who have not bent the knee to Baal. He's not all alone. You know, David, in David's case, we see that these priests have been killed, but he actually has gathered his family together at this point, and he's taken them to a safe place. And, and we see that all the people in Israel are chanting David's name. There's these songs out in the streets where people are going, Saul's killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. You know, he has this entire group of people on his side, and yet he feels utterly alone. I think he's weary about that because of his experience with King Saul. Okay, because of King Saul, there's, now there's three types of language that he's going to be a little bit wary of. Okay, and, and that's what he's talking about uh, later in, in Psalm 12. It says, Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips, a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. So here's the three types of language that David's become weary of. The, the first one is flattering lips. Okay, flattery. You know, flattery is, is kind words that people say, but they have an angle, something else that they're, they're trying to get from you. The Hebrew word for this is actually to smooth. Okay, smooth. So it's, it's someone that's really smooth. Uh, Charles Spurgeon says that compliments and fawning congratulations are hateful to honest men. They know that if they take them, they must give them, and they scorn to do either. Okay, these are, these are fawning words. These are insincere praise to somebody, and there's and there's an ultimate, um, there's a a motive underneath it. Um, I don't know about you guys. I like my coffee. Does anybody appreciate coffee in here? Um, sometimes the coffee that I make is a bit too strong, and actually I prefer to make it too strong because then if it's really strong, that means I get to add a lot of flavored creamer. Okay, and and that's like heresy to coffee fanatics, but I really do like um, caramel macchiato or any of these other flavored creamers that you can put it in it. So what happens to me, and we have a lot of these um, reusable ceramic mugs throughout the church, and if you were ever looking for one of them and you can't find them, there's probably a nice collection in my office. And it's not because I do a really good job of keeping them clean. It's because I do a really good job of emptying them to about this much left and stashing them somewhere, like on my desk or on a shelf, um, on the back of a couch. And then what I do when I find these mugs about a week later is I've is found that this, this creamer that I've used to make it smooth has actually turned on me. And it creates these beautiful little intricate patterns inside the mug. And, and you know what those patterns are, right? It's bacteria. It builds up, and, it, and that's how I know that I need to refrigerate the coffee creamer, because the bacteria does come about because of that. So if I leave it in there, what I use to make smooth actually creates these little geometric shapes, and now if I drink it, it might kill me. Okay. Flattery is much the same way. The people use these, they use words and they come at us and and it it kind of throws us off our guard. Proverbs is filled with warnings against flattery because it kind of smooths things over and it sets us up for deception later on. The next one that he he points out is this thing, a double heart. Verse 2, in a double heart they speak. If in the Hebrew, this actually says they speak with a heart and a heart. If you're talking to someone now, they'll tell they'll say that that person speaks out of both sides of their mouth. Okay, to you they'll say one thing, to me they'll say something else, to you to them they'll say something else, and all the all the while they're not sincere about any of it. Okay, lots of promises and no follow through. I was actually really bad at this, but probably like most teenagers about about speaking with. Um, out of both sides of my mouth, right? To my parents, I would say this. And to my friends, I would say this. And when I was at school, I would say this. And when I was in Sunday school, I would say this. I knew all the things to say. This is actually why when my parents come to visit us in Huntsville and people start saying nice things about me, my mom doesn't believe them at all. (laughs) She thinks they're just flattering me in front of her and saying, why would these people say these things about you? Don't they know who you really are? And I say, shh, you know. So speaking out of both sides of your mouth. Again, Saul, or David has experienced this with Saul. Saul has been. Um, Saul gets familiar with David when he before he goes to fight Goliath. After he defeats him, then, then David actually meets uh, Saul again. He brings Goliath's head with him. Um, and and he offers him his daughter, uh, as a as a marriage proposal, as a as a as a victory um, trophy, if you will. And then immediately after that, Saul becomes jealous because of those songs that the people have been singing about David in the streets, and he hears those. And so Saul becomes double-minded. He starts to—he wants David to come in and play him the lyre to help to soothe him, and yet he takes a spear and he tries to, to pin him against the wall. And he does this repeatedly. He, repeatedly, he's saying one thing, he's doing another, he's telling people this, he's actually trying to plot this. David has become very weary of this speak. and finally boasting. You know, uh, Saul if, is anything if he is anything, he's proud. He, David sees this; he realizes this, um, and, and of course, pride comes before the fall. Great example of this was that well, Voltaire. He's a um, a famous um, atheist during the Enlightenment. He actually died in seventeen seventy-eight. This is a famous quote from Voltaire. He said, "In twenty years, Christianity will be no more. My single hand shall destroy the edifice it took twelve apostles to rear." Okay, seventeen, seventy-eight. In twenty years, Christianity will be no more. It doesn't take a mathematician to understand that it's been a little bit more than twenty years. Since he passed away and Christianity is alive and strong. And we see that that, that that boasting is again, it's another one of these things where it kind of creeps inside of all of us. So where we puff ourselves up, or people are puffed up into who they think they are, yet sets themselves up for fall. So these are the things that, that, that David is concerned with. So we get next this response from the Lord, where God responds. Um, in verses 5. And I love the, the imagery of this verse. He says, The poor are plundered because the needy groan. I will now arise. And you have this image of this mighty king rising off of his throne. That God is finally going to act. He says, I will place him in the safety for which he longs. You know, God is never late to respond. His timing is always perfect. Now, sometimes it doesn't work with what we want his timing to be, but he's never he does not delay in acting. If you turn to Luke chapter 18, Jesus is talking and he's sharing a parable of a woman before a judge. Luke chapter 18, verse 7 to 8. It says, will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? God will not delay. He will give justice to them speedily. God is never too late when it comes to acting. You know, at the moment of desperation, when it seems like all is lost, when David has finally come to this point where he's giving up, God is ready to move and to act. Charles Spurgeon says this beautifully. He says, Nothing moves a father like the cries of his children. He bestirs himself, wakes up his manhood, overthrows the enemy, and sets his beloved in safety. You know, nothing moves a father like the cries of his children. And that's how God feels about us. And so now that we have this, this, the words of men, we have David, he's very wary of that, and now he goes over, if you flip back to Psalm 12, now he's going to look at the Word of God. And there's three ways that we can view the Word of God. There's three ways that we can view the Scripture. The first thing, the first way to view it, to view the Word of God, is to view it as truth. To view it as truth. So if you look at Psalm 12, Verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Okay, the first way to view this word is that, to view it as the word of God, to view it as truth. The second way that we can view the scripture is to view it as, as the word of men, to view it as, as anything but truth, right? To, to view this as simply man's words uh, written down, nothing special about them. And and the third way, I think this is actually the most dangerous way we can view the Scripture, is to to view it as a mixture of God's Word and man's Word. And this has become popular as of starting uh, even before the Enlightenment, is that we see that now we're not quite so sure. We know there's some truth in there. We know there's probably not some truth in there. It's up to us to figure out what's true and what's not true. That places us in the position of God to determine truth according to how we see truth. So scripture has faced a ton of criticism um, ever since the enlightenment especially. You know, we we have had rationalism and atheism and historical criticism. Here's a great quote I found from, from Time Magazine. It said, after more than two centuries of facing the heaviest guns that could be brought to bear, the Bible has survived and is perhaps the better for the siege. Even on the critic's own terms, historical fact, the scriptures seem more acceptable now than when the rationalists began the attack. So we see, even as people begin to attack the Word of God and to point out inconsistencies and to point out things that they believe are not true, we realize, like what David says here, it's like silver refined in a furnace, purified seven times. And Charles Spurgeon. It says that the only thing that this criticism has done to the Bible has, has done to purify away false interpretations that people have had of it. You know What it does is it, is it puts Christians on the defensive to defend the word of God and, and as a result of that they become more familiar with the truth. and They dig deeper into it to understand what it is that God is saying. So all that criticism has done to the word of God is to make the truth stand out even more. the word of the Lord is pure truth and if we have this understanding then we can rest in the promise of God and as we bring this psalm to a close you O Lord will keep them you will guard us from this generation forever on every side the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of men you know we see at the end of the psalm the psalmist's heart has changed but his circumstance has not at the end of the psalm, nothing about his outward circumstances is any different than it was at the beginning. The only thing that has happened is that he's been reminded of the truth of the word of God, and he's been reminded that God will place him in ultimate safety. Sometimes as we offer up our prayers of desperation to God, we understand that our problems aren't quite as bad as we thought they might have been. Now, Oswald Chambers has said, stand firm in faith, believing that what Jesus said is true, although in the meantime, you do not understand what God is doing. He has bigger issues at stake than the particular things you're asking of him right now. You know, sometimes when we come to pray, we understand that God is working on something bigger than our immediate situation. God is using that for something greater. He's using it for his glory. You know, oftentimes what, what happens when we turn to God in prayer is, is he, not, he doesn't deal with our situation, but He deals with us. He deals with our hearts. You know, when we want rescued, when we need help, when we want healing, when we're seeking the answers to the difficult questions in life, the greatest thing that God can give us is Himself. And He gives us Christ. You know, Christians throughout the millennium have clung to the promise of ultimate provision, they understand that the world will be difficult. They understand that we'll face per- persecution and famine and disease and death and destruction, but that the promise of God is our inheritance. You know, that we're longing for a perfect place, a perfect situation, a better world. But what God promises is that the best is yet to come. You know, that's what God's telling David. That's what he's telling us. That He's telling us, I'm true to my promise. I'm true to my word. says, I've given you my son and the best is yet to come. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that in the midst of our difficult circumstances that you reign supreme. Lord, we know that at times it seems like we're bouncing around from crisis to crisis to crisis. Father, that that what is happening now is is terrible and, and that we lose hope Lord, at many time, many of us have felt alone. Lord, just trying to stand for the truth. And yet, God, your word reminds us that you are the truth. Lord, that you will be with us. That You will not delay in answering us. You will not delay in your action. God, that your plan is perfect. God, and we thank you for that. Lord, we thank you for the reminder of that today. Lord, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to us. God, not that everything in our world would be perfect, but, Lord, that our hearts would be changed, um, that our hope and our trust would be in you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.